Welcome to the Vault Podcast, classic music reviews, presented by IV Creative. Now, here's your hosts, B. Cox and the crew. Greetings and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Vault Podcast, classic music reviews, presented by IV Creative. It's a perspective of the classics from a fresh point of view. We appreciate you for taking your time and lending your ears to our perspective. You could be anywhere listening to anything, but you're right here with us, so we thank you. With you today is yours truly, Pete Cox, and we want to give a shout out once again to all you listeners out there, all the fans, stateside and worldwide, for continuing to support the show. We want to thank you all for showing us so much love, and big shout out to De La Soul fans out there for pushing all three of the reviews that we have done of their album so far on the Vault Classic Music Reviews Podcast. Three Feet High and Rising, De La Soul is Dead, and Stakes is High. Of course, we'd like to take this moment and give our rest in peace and condolences to the family, friends, collaborators, and De La themselves for the death of Dave from De La Soul, aka Plug 2 or True Goy the Dove. Really, really a big loss, and it's huge considering the fact that De La have this years-long battle with Tommy Boy Records in order to get the rest of their albums their classics especially on streaming services for the rest of the world to be able to enjoy in mass and it's heartbreaking to find out that he passed away only a couple of weeks away from that becoming a reality so rest in peace to the dove and the influence that de la soul had plug two live on forever and we can't wait to hear de la's catalog back on streaming services for everyone to enjoy so shout out to y'all for paying tribute to de la and streaming those three episodes in particular. So thank you all for showing us love and for showing Daylight the love as well. A reminder, you can go to our website, vaultclassicpod.com. That's vaultclassicpod.com. You can go there, check out the back catalog. You can also check out information about our guest, leave a review, leave a voice note. You can also go to our Buy Me a Coffee page to leave a monetary donation to support the show. And just of this week, you can go there as well on our store merchandise page. Yes, y'all, we got merchandise. We got hats. We have t-shirts, tumblers, coffee mugs, stickers, hoodies, whatever it is you want to think about, we have it right there on the store. Go and check it out on vaultclassicpod.com backslash store. That's vaultclassicpod.com backslash store. Up until February 27th, we are running a discount, 15% off everything from the store until the end of the month. So please make sure y'all go check it out. Once again, that's vaultclassicpod.com slash store, 15% off. Go grab a t-shirt, a hat, a tumbler, a coffee mug, whatever it is. We definitely appreciate the support and rock some cool gear. And we got some new designs coming, so make sure that y'all stay tuned. As we always like to say here on The Vault, our motto is hashtag open the vault, hashtag nothing but the classics or MBTC. And today... We're going to go back to 30 years ago, and we're going to go back to an album that I feel is very important, but sometimes I think it's forgotten, especially in the landscape of what hip hop was in 1993. And that is none other than the debut studio album of Diggable Planets, Reaching, a new refutation of time and space, released on February 9th, 1993, recorded between 1992 and 1993, with a runtime of 56 minutes and 35 seconds. On Pendulum Records and Electra Records, produced entirely by group member Ishmael Butterfly Butler, Shane the Dr. Faber, who was also the engineer and a creative source behind A Tribe Called Quest debut album, People Instinctive Travels in the Pats of Rhythm, and Mike launching an attack, Man Genie, are the trio who helmed the production on this album. 
Singles from Reaching, the first one, an all-time classic, Rebirth of Slick, Cool Like That, released on November 9th, 1992. The second single, Where I'm From, released in April of 1993. And the third and final single, Nickel Bags, released August 26th, 1993. 14 tracks on Reaching, runtime of just under 57 minutes. And just to give a little bit of a background on the group Diggable Planets, a group that I think was incredibly dope. And I think that was both time appropriate and ahead of their time in both their content and also their style. So we're going to get into a little bit of the history before we get into first reactions for the album of reaching a new refutation of time and space. Now, Diggable Planets was made up of three members, Ishmael Butterfly Butler, Mariana Ladybug Mecca Vieria, and Craig Doodlebug Irving. And to me, I would have to say that Diggable Planets is an improbable hip-hop group that formed from chance encounters. Now, Butterfly was originally from Seattle, Washington, and he moved to New York City in the 80s to do an internship at Sleeping Bag Records. While he was interning for Sleeping Bag, he visited Philadelphia to visit his grandmother. And while he was there, he ended up linking up with Doodlebug, who was a native who was rapping with the group called Dread Poet Society. Now, Doodlebug in turn met Ladybug Mecca, who was originally from around my hometown and home area, the DMV, from Silver Spring, Maryland, and she was attending Howard University. Doodlebug and Ladybug Mecca were a member of Dread Poet Society. Through time, the three of them ended up linking up and they recorded demos underneath the name of Diggable Planets. The initial demos only featured Butterfly, but after a while, they became a trio and featured all three members, and then he began collaborating with them around 1989. And they signed to Pendulum Records around 1992 and all the band members moved to Brooklyn, New York, and they started recording this album, Reaching, A New Refutation of Time and Space. So that's just a brief history. And in regards to how the album was made, they helmed this. As I said, Butterfly is the one who was the creative genius and production behind this, also being assisted by Shane to Dr. Faber and Mike Mangini. Basically, what it is, is they leaned heavily on the jazz samples. And we talk about jazz rap. That was a big thing from the late 80s with the emergence of the native tongues and also groups like Gangstar with DJ Premier and his influence and also seeing that as well in groups like Brand Nubian and X-Clan. But as Butler explained that their jazz samples and usage of the jazz samples was all about, as he said, resources, that it was for records that he had around him. It was a lot of his dad's records, and they utilized basically what they had around them in order to be able to make the music. Now, they had apartments, apartments that were they used as studios and makeshift studios in order to be able to craft the sound for this album. And a lot of that was taking these jazz records that were Butterfly's dad stuff, as he called it, that they weren't necessarily considered or think of themselves as a jazz group in particular, jazz group in quotations. But because they DJ Premier was a big influence on him and the group, and he sampled a lot of jazz, then they were willing to at least accept that label because they were basically taking off of their own influence from a guy and a producer like DJ Premier. Basically, this album reaching a new refutation of time and space. It was in a time and in an era in 1993 when things were definitely starting to shift. And while you thought it was going in one direction, aka over the West Coast and the power dynamic was definitely there in one section, you could also then see that there were things emerging back on the East Coast, as we would see 
and acts like A Tribe Called Quest and the emergence of Wu-Tang Clan and other albums that you could see that eh, it wasn't necessarily all black and white. And the complexity is to me what made 1993 so great. And now let's go ahead and get into it. First thoughts and reflections. So my first reaction to reaching, it really was something that I would have to say was a development of me getting to know not only the album, but then the group itself in Diggable Planets. Now, I first heard the song Rebirth of Slick in the fifth grade, and (laughs) this is right in the midst of the transition between 1992 and 1993. Hearing it, I instantly fell in love with the song, and I fell in love also with Diggable Planets and their vibe. Being an instrumental student at that time in elementary school, having to play the trumpet, I listened to a lot of my dad's jazz records, not only the contemporary jazz of during that time, listening to stuff like Dave Koz and Earl Clue and George Benson, Joe Sample, people of that nature, but then also listening to classic jazz records, John Coltrane and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis, those type of artists. I really fell in love with jazz music and everything that it offered, not just from myself as a budding hip-hop fan, but as somebody who was a lover of music overall. I was also a big fan of Tribe Called Quest and Dig La Soul, two groups that I remember of the Native Tongues Collective, a group and a collective that I respected a lot in my beginning years as a hip-hop fan. So to me, Diggable Planets and what they brought to the table was a continuation of what the Native Tongues did. But what Diggable Planets gave was a unique proposition, an identity that was separate than what the Native Tongues gave you and gave all of us. Despite not having the longevity of all their predecessors, if the Native Tongues are thought to be Diggable Planet's predecessors, their vibe gave them a cohesion, as if they had known each other and had been together for years. They complemented each other so well in their individual styles, and their individuality, combined with the soundtrack of these warm, but they were smooth and deep jazz beats, made for a perfect alchemy of dopeness. I mean, the album, it felt like a night at an underground hip-hop show, Really seedy underground hip-hop show. All the feelings of what you think an underground hip-hop show would look like in regards to the performers, to the host, to the crowd. A poetry slam and also a night in a dimly lit, smoked out jazz lounge listening to a funky and jazzy quintet. So if I painted that picture for you, take those three elements I just gave you and imagine what that would feel like. To me, that's what that album sounded like and that's what the vibe that it gave off. Now, I actually heard the sophomore album Blowout Comb in full before I heard Reaching. And I first heard Reaching from beginning to end, from the first track to the last track in college through one of my suite mates or actually floor mates in my dorm room. And sitting there listening to the album, I was really glad that I got a chance to listen to it when I was older. And I listened to it then so that I could fully appreciate it in all of its dopeness. It's jazz rap. And it is jazz rap in the tradition of those who I mentioned before, but it's still unique in its execution. Its genius is really to think that you can take many of the elements and samples that have been used by some other hip hop groups and some other hip hop acts, which when you get into the sampling arena and you look at what has been sampled and who has sampled it, you know, we have tools today to be able to tell us who has sampled what. But when you look at what has been sampled, you can see that a lot of producers have used a lot of the same samples, especially in the jazz space, even though the jazz space is huge and you can sample so many different records. And some of them, some people will never have heard of some of the samples that you use. But being able to take some of those same samples and make it seem unique and fresh, the jazz, as Butterfly stated, you know, it was really a matter of resources, what they had around them. They used the tools that they had in order to craft the sound that they had. And for me, sonically, 
it's both appropriate and also refreshingly nostalgic. Sort of like in the same way that I talked about albums such as The Main Ingredient by Pete Rock and CL Smooth or Maxwell's Urban Hang Suite. When I listen to it, I sort of think that the album was created to be appreciated by listeners for a period beyond just the time and what it was created. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that you can listen to the album years after it was created and it won't seem dated or it won't really seem like it's not time appropriate. It won't seem as though it's just like, man, what was I thinking about when I listened to that? And I thought this was so dope. Now I'm listening to it now. And I'm may have been like, Oh, 12 or 13 years old or 15 or 16 years old. And now I'm almost in my forties or close to my fifties. And I'm listening to this now. And this really doesn't sound as good as it was when I first listened to it back then. But to me, this is not the case for this album. In some sense, how some albums are dated, stale dated, I would have to say, and also time sensitive, this does not sound stale dated or time sensitive at all. As their listeners' ears mature, so does the music. I felt that way about The Main Ingredient. I felt that way about Urban Hang Suite and a couple of different albums that I've reviewed so far here on The Vault. And I feel the same way about that on Reaching. It's a maturation of sound that matures as the listeners do. And I feel as though if you were of that target audience then, if you fast forward 30 years now, even as we have matured, the sound has matured along with us. So it sounds even as fresh as it did when it came out and doesn't sound dated today. In a lot of ways, they were mindful of their influences, both from the likes of predecessors like De La, Tribe, The Jungle Brothers, and DJ Premier, who produced a lot of jazz records, using that with his productions from Gangstar and many other groups that he produced for and acts that he produced for. And they're also ahead of their time. And in the midst of all the hoopla of 1993, and you talk about all the landmark releases that came out, the Enter the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers, the Midnight Marauders, the Enter the Stage by Black Moon, the Doggy Styles, all of those albums and so many other more that we'll talk about in this chaotic atmosphere of music and where you had really a complex musical soundboard when it came to hip-hop music and the kaleidoscope was full of so many different other colors and spectrums to choose from that they gave you something that was unique and it was a unique proposition that back then even in 1993 could grab a segment of the audience and captivate it fully and that to me was the genius of Diggable Planets, really, is the fact that what they gave you was so unique that despite everything that was so dope around it that could pull your attention away from it, you could still find a way to be able to take it, listen to it, and appreciate it for what it was. Highlights and lowlights. So my highlights, and <laughs> I'm going to give you guys a spoiler alert here. There are lots of highlights on this album. If you've heard me wax poetically about this album in the intro and in my first reactions, Spoiler alert, there's a lot of highlights in this album. So I'm going to go over the overall highlights and a brief overview of what the highlights are. Production, without a doubt, is a highlight. I mean, <laughs> the work on here by Butterfly, The Doctor, and Mike Mangini is crazy. I mean, the jazz production on here, the sample sounds so warm. The drums are snappy, but not too hard. And they're appropriate on the track where they don't overwhelm the melodic influences of it. And also the cohesion by the group together is just absolutely crazy. Butterfly, Doodlebug, and Ladybug Mecca all have this cohesion about them where Butterfly does a lot of the heavy lifting. He does have a few solo joints on here, but Ladybug and Doodlebug, they don't feel like afterthoughts. And sometimes when you have with rap groups, you have the one 
or maybe even two that shine. And then the other member or the other couple of members in the groups may feel sort of like afterthoughts or they don't contribute as much. But to me, in fact, it feels like they complete each other. The group does. The other two, like Ladybug and Doodlebug give the album its unique proposition of what make Diggable Planet so dope. The fact that you have styles that may seem fairly similar, almost, I would say, sort of like copy and paste, but not at all once you get into the intricacies of the rhymes and also the flows of all three. The cohesion that they have to me is what drives this album and what drives what Diggable Planets did, not just on this album, but also on their sophomore album of Blowout Comb. It's that you get mostly a group that reflects what the album cover is. Three individuals all standing together and below them are the roots that hold up the tree. And that to me is what Diggable Planets is. Lastly, listening to it, the hooks are definitely a highlight. It's sort of like in some instances call and response but definitely very easy to recite and very easy to rap along to. That to me is a formula of success. Being able to have thoughtful music over snapping jazz beats and then being able to have hooks that are very easy to recite and in some cases even call and response. Perfect formula right there. But to get into the songs of the highlights on Reaching. Now, <laughs> everything on here, I'm going to tell you right now, I do not have a track on here that is a low light whatsoever. I even tried to nitpick this album listening to it this week to be like, you know what? There's got to be something in this album that's been 30 years old that if I listen to it now, I'm going to listen to it and be like, you know what? Nah, this is whack. You know, eh, this might seem a little old. This is a little dated. And I listened to it, I want to say, three or four times this week. And every time that I listened to it, I sat there with my pen or paper if I was trying to jot on a pad or I sat at my computer as I'm trying to type up notes. And as I'm listening through to the tracks, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to catch something. I'm going to catch something. I didn't. I didn't capture anything here that I was just like, you know what? This is definitely a low light or something that I could live without. So let's start from the top. It's good to be here. The first track is an awesome sonic introduction. It's an intro to the album's theme. You sort of get this whole introduction of the this refutation of time and space. You get the themes that are present here. You talk about things. Obviously, there's liberal topics as well and ideology. You do hear some, of course, philosophy topics from people who as well, like Karl Marx and Nitschke, those type of philosophers. You do hear some Afrocentric themes in here as well. And it all comes and it sort of lays the basis of what you're going to get through the album. Pacifics, which is also from the New York is Red Hot soundtrack, motion picture soundtrack. But to me, it sounds almost as appropriate on a 70s black exploitation movie, getting that feeling of funk and the way that the track flows and how they spit their rhymes on this. It sort of gets you that feeling as though it's made in 93, but it would have been just as appropriate in 1973 as well. Where I'm from is a great tribute to the group, where they're from, their particular ways of life in their neighborhoods. To me, it's almost like a tribute to black culture. That could be replicated to any place in America and also in the world where black people exist, being able to celebrate all the intricacies of culture and what it means to us as a people. What Cool Breezes do is an infectious horn sample in that hook. It's just crazy. It to me is one of the combinations of the all three of them and their lyrics and their flow of everything sort of coming together and making it work. Time and Space, another dope track there as well. It's very upbeat. You sort of hear that, and that lays right into the rebirth of Slick. Now, the rebirth of Slick, cool like that. I'm going to go into the breakdown of this. This, to me, may be one of the most complete songs in hip-hop history. Again, I'm going to say it one more time. 
This to me may be one of the most complete songs in hip hop history. Why do I say that? Because it has everything that you want for a dope hip hop track. The beginning as the song comes in, that bass line that comes from Art Blakely and the Jazz Messenger stretching. And then you hear that bass line ride for a little bit. Then after that bass line comes in, you get the snaps. And that snap sort of gets your head nodding a little bit. And then boom, then the rest of the drums come in. And then after the rest of the drums come in and you rock to that, to me, the real star of the track comes in. The horns. <laughs> the horns, to me, which help to make the track what it is. Because when you hear those horns, you know that mm, something dope is coming. And then right after that, you get into butterflies first. Followed by Dope Verse by Ladybug Mecca. And then Doodlebug closes us out. He definitely is the anchor on this album. We're closing out a lot of these songs. And The Hook. <laughs> My goodness. The Hook. So simple, right? I mean, you can't get more simple than taking a phrase and repeating it. However many times they repeated it. Or six times. Who knows? But whatever it is, you can't help but sing along or rap along with it. To me. Again, one of the most complete songs in hip-hop history. It is a song that even now, 30 years later, that when you hear that bass line, you already know what it is. <laughs> one of the most recognizable intros of hip-hop song ever. But then afterwards, you get into it, and you get into a track like The Last of the Spitty Ox, that horn loop, and the bass, absolutely crazy. To me, one of Butterfly's best verses on the album. And great contributions on here by Ladybug Mecca and by Doodlebug, this probably is my favorite joint of the album, along with the next joint on here with Jimmy Digging Cats, utilizing that Summer Madness sample by Cool and the Gang, which we heard on Summertime and we've heard on Donnell Jones, All About You. So <laughs> that sample takes you a certain place when you hear it, obviously, because of the songs that I mentioned and all the other songs that have sampled that classic by Cool and the Gang. But talking about the theme of how if they were back in the 70s, who they would be cool with. Hey, Isaac Hayes would have his own 900 number. Jimmy definitely would be digging us and digging these cats. So it's it definitely is a dope song. It falls right in the theme with the album. One of the more creative and telling tracks on here isn't even a rap song at all. It's La Femme Fetale, a poem written and spit by Butterfly, spoken word poem. It's a poem that speaks mainly of reproductive rights and sites of a battle of 30 years ago about the debate that raged in the country during that time of Roe v. Wade. To me, it is something that is chilling. It is prophetic, considering the events of the last year, the repealing of the ruling of Roe v. Wade, showing once again that nothing is new under the sun. And isn't it crazy to think about it, that 30 years ago, Diggable Planets had a track and a couple of tracks where they mentioned things about women's reproductive rights, and it's appropriate that 30 years later, here we stand in America where the actual ruling of Roe v. Wade is a reality where it's been repealed. Crazy when you think about it. I mean, they were talking about that 30 years ago. And here we stand in 2023 with no Roe v. Wade. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Escapism to me is a real head nodder of a track. So many of these tracks on here are real head nodders. Appointment at the Fat Clinic. Both this and also escapism interject that baseline from Rebirth of Slick into the song to help catch your attention. It sort of grabs you and then you pay attention to the song afterwards. Nickelbags, a real funky groove that gives the group their chance to spit raps that remind us of what the best neighborhood days may seem like. Sort of like the way to intersperse that Give Me a Love sample with Curtis Mayfield from that Superfly soundtrack. 
I mean, we talk about funk and soul. It's, it's blessed with this track in Nickel Bags. And then you close out the album with two solid tracks and swoon units and examination of what you get that feeling that it's just like, all right, man, these cats got something. And we talk about alternative hip hop. And last year we examined far side, you know, bizarre ride to the far side and how they were an alternative hip hop group. It's sort of like they were in the same motivation. As I went through each one of those tracks, again, I could not find a weak spot. The production is just solid. The hook's crazy. And all three of the MCs on there, from Butterfly to Ladybug to Doodlebug, complemented each other so well. What I love what they do in their rhymes is that they sort of big each other up. And it's sort of like somebody and they complement each other well, picking up a line, sort of interjecting right at the right time where somebody picks up a verse in midstream. I talk about the cohesion on here. Like sometimes you get rap groups that have been together for 20 to 30 years that do not even have the same cohesion that this group had. And they had been together only for a few years. So it's just really amazing what was done on this album on those 14 tracks. So lots of highlights, no low lights to me whatsoever. So gotta love that. Notable quotables. So my notable quotable is actually not even a rap song at all. I mentioned this during our highlights with La Femme Fetale, the poem spit by Butterfly that talked about reproductive rights. Now, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to take the second part in most of this poem and listen to this, these words that Butterfly says. Well, our love was often a verb and spontaneity has bought a third. But due to our youth and economic state, we wish to terminate about this. We don't feel great, but maybe that's how it is. But the feds have dissed me. They ignored and dismissed me. The pro-lifers harassed me outside the clinic and call me a murderer. Now that's hate. So needless to say, we're in a mental state of debate. Hey, beautiful bird, I said, digging her somber mood. The fascists are some heavy dudes and they don't really give a damn about life. They just don't want a woman to control her body or have the right to choose. But baby, that's ain't nothing. They just want a male finger on the button. Because if you say war, they'll send them to die by the score. A boarding mission should be your volition. But if Souter and Thomas have their way, you'll be standing in line unable to get welfare while they'll be out hunting and fishing. But it's always been around. It will always have a niche. But they'll make it a privilege, not a right. Accessible only to the rich. Hey, pro-lifers, need to dig themselves. Because life doesn't stop after birth. And for a child born to the unprepared, it might even just get worse. The situation would surely change if they were to find themselves in it. Supporters of the H-bomb and firebombing clinics. What type of shit is that? Orwellingen, in fact. If Roe v. Wade was overturned, would not the desire remained intact? Leaving young girls to risk their health and doctors to botch and watch as they kill themselves. Now, I hate to sound macabre, but hey, isn't it my job to lay it on the masses and get them off their asses to fight against these fascists? So whatever you decide that move with pride, Sid will be there, and so will I, an insect, till I die. <laughs> Crazy, man. <laughs> How prophetic that verse was. My goodness. I mean, <laughs> that to me is classic material. I mean, that's something that stands up after 30 years and considering the fact now that there are no new things under the sun and here we are as a reality in America. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Final verdict. So my final verdict of reaching a new refutation of time and space. Looking at everything, you've heard me so far, what I've said about it. 
uh, to me, it's none other than a classic. It is a classic to me in regards to what I think about it. But to me, I think it's sort of been forgotten. As I mentioned earlier, it's often overshadowed by, I think, by hardcore hip hop heads, by their sophomore album, Blowout Comb. Now, many people who have followed hip hop and listened to both albums will say that Blowout Comb is their best album. And I think that there is a very good argument to make that case. I won't argue with that because I actually think that Blowout Comb is their best album as well. Now, they were dope, Diggable Planets was. And as a matter of fact, they won a Grammy Award for Rebirth of Slick and cool like that. And they deserve to win one because it definitely was a culture-shifting song and a song that has maintained throughout the years, 30 years afterwards. But in the midst of what they were doing with Reaching and then eventually with Blowout Comb, the music industry was changing. It was changing and shifting and things were moving in regards to what direction the music industry was going into. So therefore their brand of music, that niche was growing smaller and smaller. And as a result of that, their blowout comb album didn't do as well commercially as this one. This album went gold blowout comb did not do well at all commercially, but it definitely was acclaimed years afterwards. But by the time that blowout comb got the recognition that it needed, the group had already broken up and they have reunited. They are still touring now. I think people are starting to give them some of their flowers on the internet, but I do believe that diggable planets could have resisted a bit in the same space. That was similar for a trio, almost like the Fugees. You look at it, almost same dynamics, self-produced group, a group that, you know, two male members, one female MC. I thought that they sort of had the ability to fit in that same spot like the Fugees, albeit it would have been with a different vibe. And not much as a crossover appeal in that era, like the way that the Fugees eventually did with the score. But I think that if they would have stayed in that niche and continued to make music, that Diggable Planets could have had a catalog that we would have revered for so many years. And to me, I think it really is a shame that they've been forgotten. It's sort of lost in sort of the space that is 1993 and the ridiculousness that was, not just in hip-hop albums or R&B albums that existed back then, and I think we all need to take some time as a hip-hop fan base to appreciate them for what they were and the unique proposition that they gave. That even though it was jazz rap, and though they weren't the first ones to do jazz rap, what they did and the sonic quality they have were not just the music, but in also their cohesion and their raps and their flow sort of gave us that feeling that made you feel like the way that their debut single is. Cool like that. It really was the rebirth of Slick, and we have to give them credit for that. So there we have it, ladies and gentlemen, Diggable Planets reaching a new refutation of time and space turning 30 years old. Make sure y'all go check it out. Let us know what y'all think about it. Hit us up on social media, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, whatever it is. Hit us up there. Let us know what you feel about this album. What are your thoughts about the tracks? And what would you rank it as far as the classic rating? Essential, classic, just dope, just okay, not that good. Go ahead and let us know. Let's continue the conversation. We'd love to hear what you got to say. And that is going to wrap up yet another edition of The Vault. Please make sure you are visiting us at vaultclassicpod.com. That's vaultclassicpod.com. There you can learn more about the show, check out our past episodes, join our mailing list, leave a review, or if so inclined, you can leave us a voice note. Click the blue microphone in the bottom right-hand corner to leave us a voice note to let us know what you think about the show or to just show us some love. To support the show, click the coffee cup shaded in yellow in the bottom left-hand corner to access our Buy Me A Coffee page. On Buy Me A Coffee, you can give a small monetary donation to support the show to ensure that we can keep the vault open for many years to come. 
You can also visit us on social media at Vault Classic Pod on IG, Twitter, and on TikTok. Also hit us on YouTube and our Facebook page. Like and follow us on social media. Subscribe to the pod and the YouTube channel. We do it here all for you. We appreciate the support. And if you have a friend, tell a friend and make sure that that friend tells a friend. Always remember to keep your headphones on and your music loud, but not too loud. And as we close, we like to remind everyone to dream big because dreams are the basis for creation. Always create, motivate and elevate because you were never destined or created to stay stationary or ordinary in this life. And on that note, we say peace. Thank you for listening and coming into The Vault. Please subscribe and visit us at vaultclassicpod.com. That's vaultclassicpod.com. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.